It's Thursday, the 11th of May. In this episode of Going Viral, Dr. Gary Groman discusses if early exercise may worsen myositis and or myocarditis from acute COVID infection or even immediately following an mRNA vaccination in younger healthy people. We will also look into the trial, which makes us question our very long waiting lists for our long COVID clinics and where our money should be spent. The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest on COVID-19, with leading voices from across Australia providing medical professionals with up-to-date information from reliable sources. Here's today's episode. Dr. Groman, tell us about yourself. Good morning, David. Thank you very much again for the invitation. I've been recently working for the World Health Organization as a consultant since about 2015, mainly on influenza and COVID. And uh, I consult to the vaccine industry in terms of uh, production um, and uh, vaccines in general. And prior to that, I was 17 years with the, um, <clears throat> with the Therapeutic Goods Administration as head of immunobiology. Gary, this morning, there's several, if you like, topics we can touch on. The first one I'd like to bring up would be the mRNA and myocarditis issues. I hear you also have an interest in this area. Tell us about this. Look, there's no question, David, that uh, there are myocarditis issues from probably all the vaccines, but more so the mRNA vaccines. So we've seen very, very clearly on data that's been presented uh, to the TGA and uh, elsewhere, that myocarditis is a clear issue at around about one in 50 to 100,000, depending on the data you believe and how you interpret it with uh, both the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine. We've seen one death related to spike vax, the Moderna vaccine, which is unfortunate. But then there are many, many other reports of transient myocarditis if you like, uh, leading into long COVID, which we can talk about a bit later. Uh, but now um, Novavax, there are some case reports of myocarditis and pericarditis being associated with the Novavax vaccine. But I really would like to add that these are really observational studies and uncontrolled. Mm-hmm. Until we get case control studies and an understanding of the background of myocarditis in those populations and an understanding of the medical history of those particular patients, I think it's very hard to comment. Mm-hmm. But we can say that all vaccines have side effects. Most of them um, only last a few days. It seems with these vaccines against COVID-19, especially the mRNA, there appear to be more side effects. I might add there's a nice snapshot from the FDA, which takes a snapshot every month of 42,000 reports. And the most recent report showed 2.5% of those had cardiac issues, which is quite high, 24% had GI issues, and 17% had fatigue. Now, they do use a different suite of vaccines over there, a different proportion, if you like. But again, they're mainly mRNA or they're adenovirus-vected vaccines, as in the Johnson & Johnson. So this is what we're seeing. There are sometimes some significant side effects which may or may not lead to vaccine injury. And as you know, there's now quite a movement in that whole vaccine injury area leading to a class action in Queensland, I'm sure will be the first of many, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But there are many people now saying, well, 
you know, for the last three months I've had brain fog or for the last six months I've had myocarditis or cardiac issues or GI issues or serious fatigue that have stopped me from working. And this is now the issue, how much injury do we have from these vaccines and how widespread is it? And that's going to be very hard to tell at the moment. I might add there was a um, demonstration here on the weekend in Canberra where thousands of posters were put up for each individual claiming at least to have had some vaccine-related injury uh, mm -hmm. from COVID-19. Again, predominantly the mRNA vaccines, uh, some also attributed to Vaxevria, the adenovirus-based vaccine from Oxford, from AstraZeneca, and uh, again, 13 deaths were related to that, although I don't think all of those were really related to the vaccine. I think it's just the fact that people weren't aware of TTS and um, uh, thrombocytopenia syndrome. And I think if there had to be more awareness in that area from government to the public, between doctors and patients, then there would, would have been far fewer, if any, deaths. But as far as I know, in the UK, there have been very few vaccine-associated deaths uh, due mm -hmm. to that particular vaccine. Gary, this raises a lot of questions in my mind, uh, seeing that vaccine injury is real, and so many people claim that they have been affected. And recently, the WHO has pretty much told us that the global emergency is over. Yeah, let's start with the good news. The WHO has declared after three years, declaring it as a, a public health emergency of international concern or a fake, B-H-E-I-C. Uh, now, uh, they're withdrawing that. And so the global health emergency is over. And they base that on the fact that the death rate has dropped from 100,000 per week in January 2021 mm -hmm. to 3,500 in April 2023. That's globally. But they also add, let, and I'm quoting them now, do not let your guard down. Dis do not dismantle the systems that have been built or send the message to people that COVID-19 is nothing to worry about. So they put that little caveat in there. They've said the emergency has ended, but the threat is still there. And that's true because these viruses may reassort, although personally I don't think they will, to create a new, even more dangerous virus. But that's been the fear of many over the last three years. And they've also said, and again I quote, in most cases pandemics truly end when the next pandemic begins. So there's some truth in that. So we can expect this virus through its various iterations of Omicron to keep going for some time until people develop immunity to it naturally or until there's another pandemic that comes along that knocks it out, so to speak. And this has been what we've seen over the last 100 years. Flu is the main example, of course, we have. H1N1 disappeared and then came back. Uh, H2N2 arrived, it disappeared. H3N2 arrived, it's still going. And H1N1 came back, but in a milder form, and it's still going. And then we had uh, the pandemic of 2009, which fortunately was incredibly mild. And now what we're seeing is an Omicron virus that is also incredibly mild, mild enough for the WHO now to withdraw its emergency declaration. So that, I think, is great news. But they did also make seven recommendations, if you don't mind me just very quickly. Uh, firstly, is that they've advised countries, health departments and so on to sustain the national capacity gains and prepare for future events. 
and to avoid the occurrence of the cycle of panic and neglect. And this is something I think we all need to think about. There has been an extraordinary cycle of panic, and now we're in a cycle of neglect. So we need to just be a little bit careful not to let our guard down, as they've said already. So we need a calibrated response, and we need good guidance from health authorities in these areas. The second point they made was to integrate the current COVID-19 vaccination into life course vaccination programs. Well, this I think we're already starting to do around the world, which is great. The third one was to bring together information from diverse respiratory pathogen surveillance data sources. Again, I think this is important, not only all the work that is done around the world on efficacy and effectiveness, immunogenicity, but also all the work done on safety and also all the work done on genetic information. Needs really to be all brought together. The fourth point they made was that regulatory authorities should support long-term authorization to ensure availability and supply of vaccines and also diagnostics and therapeutics. This is really an important point. If regulatory authorities are not working together on the same page, then that will indeed interrupt availability and supply because manufacturers are not miracle workers. They have to work through regulators. But if all the regulatory authorities have different mechanisms and uh, paperwork and so on, it triples or quadruples the work. And we need these vaccines quickly in the face of a pandemic. We don't need bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. Fifthly, there's the infodemic problem. So by infodemic, I mean this extraordinary epidemic of misinformation, mm -hmm. which we've seen all over social media, YouTube, even from very credible scientists and medical practitioners. But the problem with that infodemic is that nobody has all the information, nobody has all the facts, and people use their position or their title to speak about these things with apparently some authority, but they're really talking out of place. And that kind of thing has to stop somehow. Again, yeah. I don't know how, but it's a good warning from the WHO. And they also want the world to continue to lift COVID-19 travel restrictions. This is important because we're dealing with Omicron now. We're not dealing with Delta and the iterations before it. We're dealing with Omicron now. So there's really no need anymore for proof of vaccination as a prerequisite for international travel, because this virus is mild, very mild. And it'll uh, be interesting to see later on how many long COVID cases are from Omicron versus, say, Delta and previous iterations. And of course, to continue to support research, because we need a vaccine that is going to reduce transmission or impede this virus completely, not one that simply um, stops again, uh, stops issues around severe effects. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that's really important that we keep the eye on the ball, continue to do that research, but not only in vaccines, in therapeutic drugs. And not only in therapeutic drugs, but in decent diagnostic tests. And uh, if there's time, I'd like to talk about rat tests because mm -hmm. I don't think they're very useful anymore. But it's very, very important that we keep the eye on the ball for both vaccines and in particular therapeutics, because if we can land a decent therapeutic antiviral drug or drugs, then in the face of the next pandemic, that should be our first line of defence because it takes time to make vaccines, even mRNA vaccines, which of course are miraculous and it's fantastic we had them and they've saved many, many lives. Uh, but there are still some issues around those vaccines and safety, as we've already discussed. Very interesting points there, Gary. But I want to go back right up the top where they asked us 
not to let our guard down. To me, yes. I see a problem here because you did mention to us how there are class actions and lots of people in Canberra, you know, claiming they had been injured by the vaccines. And at the moment, the if you like, we just walk out on the street. It looks like nobody cares anymore. So how do we ensure that we continue to keep our guard up when, in fact, everybody's fed up? And, in fact, uh, more than that, we are now aware that a group of people have been hurt uh, by the vaccines. What are we supposed to do? Well, this is, comes down to this avoidance of the occurrence of uh, the cycle of panic and neglect. So we've been through the cycle of panic, which was unfortunate, and through that came the infodemic. And now we're going through a cycle of neglect. As you say, we don't really care. But it's important not to neglect what we've already built. We have built tremendous structures, if you like, in public health to handle the next pandemic. And we must not lose that. We must be aware and keep preparing for the next pandemic and not take our eye off the ball. We have to transition basically to a longer term disease management paradigm. We have to understand that Omicron, like flu, like measles, like monkeypox, like many other viruses, will be with, with us all the time. And we have to have a longer term disease management strategy there, which may very well differ from country to country. But really, it's one country, it's one world, and it's a one world problem, not really a country problem. Although various nations will have different responses. And we need guidance on calibrating that response. So we have to keep up the awareness of coronavirus uh, without it falling into neglect. It's the same with influenza, because that's another one uh, where, where many people die from flu in Australia and around the world over the age of 65 and under five. It has um, uh, different risk groups. Uh, it's got issues also uh, in pregnancy and people with underlying disease. So it's not too dissimilar to coronavirus, except that the under fives can also be very badly affected and there is a death rate that can be measured. So we do have paediatric issues. Uh, and it's really important to keep up the vaccination uh, for influenza, whole of life. But of course, we fall into a cycle of neglect there too. And we see many adults doing the ages of 20 and 50 couldn't be bothered getting the flu vaccine. And because of the infodemic, they think it either gives them flu or makes them more susceptible to flu in some way, which is all rubbish. But that's the problem with the infodemic. In a way, I think we need our own TikTok. Uh, we, we need a social media platform that is active for science and medicine mm -hmm. uh, that people will go to and find interesting, that has all the latest information. At the moment, everything's spread across God knows how many thousands of websites. I mean, each state in Australia has... Uh, can't even think of how many websites that work with uh, COVID. They don't necessarily all say diff uh, the same thing or different things. They just have a different slant on things. And um, it'd be much better, as we've talked about before, and as the Labor Party promised, if we had our own CDC, one place of information that everybody could trust. At the moment, we don't get states trusting each other, et cetera, et cetera. And it's all become politicised, which is really unfortunate. The same happened in the US and the EU as well. So we need this one authority that everybody will follow and everybody trusts. And that, I think, is really important. It works reasonably well in America with the CDC there and the NIH. Sometimes they don't agree. But we just need this one authority. And, you know, until we get that, we are going to have different responses and fall into the cycle of 
either panic or neglect. Yeah. That's very important about that. So transitioning to longer-term disease management is basically a matter of communication and making sure resources are available and the research does not stop. That yeah. is really important. And we now need to calibrate our response. Yes, of course, people don't need to fly um, with a vaccine certificate or a mask or things like that. My personal advice is I'd wear a mask. I do wear a mask when I fly. I do wear a mask when I go into areas that don't have good ventilation. I think it's important for an older person or people approaching immunosenescence or people with underlying issues, they should wear a mask. Now, the evidence is it doesn't really do much. I agree with that evidence. But what it does for a person just psychologically is invaluable. It gives them, I suppose, a bit of a placebo effect, but it also keeps other people away from them. You'll note when people walk around the shopping centres with masks, people tend to give them a bit of a wider berth. Mm-hmm. And if you're in an enclosed community setting, it will have some effect, but they're not foolproof, I agree. They're not N95 masks and so on. Gary, um, you referred yeah. to the fact that um, evidence that masks don't do much. I had a look at some of the articles, and I must say I did not see how they controlled how well the masks were fitted, how they were used. And it did, did surprise me that they said that the N95 was no better than the surgical mask. Um, and that was surprising for me. What do you make of all that? No, I think the, the studies on masks have been interesting and it, it really is paper thin, the, the evidence for wearing a mask. But where it becomes very useful is for the asymptomatic person. I've often relate this anecdote, and maybe I've done it on this program before, but I remember in 1984 when I went to a conference and gave an opening uh, plenary lecture, uh, I was met at the airport in Japan uh, by my host. Of course, I didn't have Japanese, and I uh, uh, we caught this bullet train, and I said to my host, why is that lady down the back wearing a mask? Is it because of pollution or is, she, or, or is it because she's afraid of catching something uh, why Why is it? And to my surprise, he said, no, no, it's a matter of courtesy. She probably has a sore throat or maybe doesn't feel a bit unwell, but she needs to go somewhere, so she wears a mask as a matter of courtesy. So in Japan, wearing a mask, washing your hands, mm. uh, being courteous to others when it comes to hygiene is really, really important. Mm. And they're taught this from a young age. And I opened the conference with that example, how important that is. This is the cycle of neglect we can fall into is not caring about those basic, very important hygiene things. Mm. Uh, but, and, you know, it all starts at home, of course, and at school. And if, it, if it's not practised there, then there will be this cycle of neglect and there will be virus spread, as we see, as mm. we see, just look at a daycare centre, just look at schools. Even though we have very good vaccines and a very good vaccine programme with 90-whatever percent children vaccinated, viruses still spread, outbreaks still happen. And it's, you know, we forget the other bit, the cycle of neglect, wash your hands. (laughs) And if you're a little concerned about COVID-19 and long COVID, and by the way, the only way not to get long COVID is not to get COVID, then, you know, I wear a mask. And it just makes perfect sense to me to wear a mask in those uh, situations where ventilation is poor. Ventilation was a, a key issue when it came to the spread of the virus in the community. I would love to just move on to the long COVID in half a minute, but uh, I do thank you, Gary, for looking at what structures we need to create and what we ought to maintain uh, so that we get our guard up for the next pandemic. Uh, I must say that um, I am 
not as optimistic, I guess, uh, about our own CDC, where all states trust and work together. Because if anything, I saw how we fractured immediately into different parts of Australia. I'm, I'm hoping that, of course, this becomes the past. But um, that's just a comment. So let's move on to long curve because I have a great interest in this. Tell me about this, Gary. Where are we at in Australia with long COVID? Right. So as you know, a lot of work going on um, with uh, long COVID. It's certainly very real. And one of the problems in it is in handling it is diagnosing it. Uh, this is the first issue. So WHO did provide a definition. They say, and I quote, the continuation or development of new symptoms three months after the initial SARS-CoV-2 infection, with these symptoms lasting for at least two months with no other explanation. Now, that's, I, I suppose, a reasonable definition to start with. But then if you go to other websites, they say, for example, I've got a CDC one here, which says uh, that if this persists for six weeks, so the first problem is diagnosis. So point number one, anyone who gets COVID can possibly get long COVID, okay. including people with no symptoms or mild illness. So there are cases of people that have had it asymptomatically and have ended up with long COVID and people with mild illness. So you don't have to have severe illness. And the returning and ongoing symptoms, um, some people say, should be four to six weeks. WHO says three months or more. And the most commonly reported symptoms are fatigue and dizziness, symptoms that get worse after mental or physical effort, recovering fever, difficulty breathing, shortness of breath, sometimes a cough. And then rarely, and this is where long COVID really comes in, are the neurological symptoms, everything from difficulty concentrating to not sleeping well, loss of smell and taste, depression. Uh, then others have joint and muscle pain. Others have heart symptoms usually palpitation, sometimes myocarditis, pericarditis. Others have GI symptoms. Some people get vascular issues, uh, have blood clots, for example. Uh, some people get a rash. In some women, there are changes in the menstrual cycle. And in many people, there are reactivation of latent viruses of the herpes group, leaving people with shingles, Guillain-Barre syndrome, and Bell's palsy, for example, have all been reported. So it's a broad spectrum of issues that can happen with somebody with long COVID. Then there are other papers that describe some very important long-term effects. This is now nine months or so. And this mainly relates to people that have had severe illness. They can get organ damage, particularly affecting the kidneys, heart and brain. And there's some good papers out there on what's going on in the brain um, with the spike protein issues there, which isn't being cleared. And then there's inflammation, again, a long-term effect Often people get new conditions like diabetes or heart or nervous system conditions. And then there's multi-system inflammatory syndrome that uh, can also affect people. But generally, these long-term effects only affect people that have had severe illness. Now, the risk factors are, and again, depends on the papers you read, but from what I glean from it, it's more common in adults than in children and teens. About 20% of adults seem to have these long-term effects globally, at least. That's a global data. And severe illness with COVID-19, especially if hospitalised or needing intensive care, that is a risk factor. And I noticed the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare in their data showed that being female is also a risk factor, which I hadn't realised until recently. And I'm trying to get more information on that to see how true that is. But apparently the Australian data shows that. And very recent research from CDC showed 
that COVID-19 can actually cause brain abnormalities six months after symptoms have gone. These are changes in the brain stem and the front lobe areas of the brain. And these are associated with fatigue, insomnia, anxiety, and so on. And they've used a special MRI to detect and monitor these neurological conditions, particularly microbleeds, vascular malformations, brain tumors, and strokes. So they've got evidence now of what COVID-19 can do to the brain if it persists. So very clearly, this virus is affecting all systems, particularly GI, uh, nervous system, uh, respiratory systems, and can cause a variety of long-term effects. Mm. And they can't be treated generically. Each patient is different. It's not easy to follow a lot of these patients through. A lot of these symptoms could be due to other issues. So it takes some very careful diagnosis and examination to really know if uh, these patients are suffering from long COVID and or something else. But it's quite clear that you've got these neurological damage, metabolic disorders, kidney injury, myocarditis, pericarditis, pulmonary function impairment, and also GI issues are all part of the long COVID syndrome, but not everybody has all of that at once. They might have one or two of those issues. But uh, the numbers are increasing, people with long COVID, as people realise that the symptoms they're they're suffering between six and nine months after getting COVID uh, might well be due to long COVID. Gary, all I'm seeing is the amount of work that's been piled up for my GP colleagues. It's looking quite frightening because, um, you know, what we have been looking out for for all patients with severe COVID is a list as long as my arm, really. It's huge. It's absolutely huge and getting longer as people identify these things more and more. And part of the problem, or not a problem, but just it's because of the time course. I mean, COVID came along and uh, we had it sweep through the community. Many people got COVID and recovered. In fact, the vast majority, 90-something percent of people recover with an acute infection and have no issues. Uh, But then from, uh, it seems to me, five to six weeks onwards, there can be various other injuries leading to long COVID. So we need to know why and how. And it seems to be due to the spike protein accumulation, um, seems to be macrophage impairment as well. There's all sorts of immunological issues that are delayed. If somebody has a good acute immune response, then they don't go into long COVID. That's something we do know. But when either the cellular or humoral immunity is delayed for some reason, and generally that would be in people with underlying issues, then uh, or immunosenescence, uh, then they can develop long COVID. Uh, so that's, you know, they have to watch this space, so to speak. I might add that there, there's one um, interesting piece of information from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare Review, uh, which is uh, fairly recent. It said that it concluded that two COVID vaccination doses are associated with a 13 to 47% lower risk of symptoms persisting beyond four weeks. So there, there seems to be an argument, although the evidence is a little bit loose, but I think there's an argument reasonably good that if you get two to three doses of vaccine, uh, it may help in avoiding long COVID. So mm-hmm. it's, a good, it's a good argument to get that primary course of vaccination. In view of that and the fact that, uh, if you like, we, we still are asking people to go ahead and have uh, mRNA shots. Well, if we look at a target advice, uh, they're saying that if you're a person at risk, so a person at risk is over 65, residents of aged care and so on, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders over 50, 
people that are immunocompromised, people with a disability. So if you're in one of those groups, mm -hmm. you're over 18 years old, then it's recommended you get constant boosters. Yeah. If you're 5 to 17, it says consider it, but it's not recommended. And if you're under five years, it's not recommended at all. And if you have no risk factors at all, it's not recommended for the under fives and the five to 17, so under 17. And for 18 to 64 years that are healthy, no risk factors to consider it, but it's not recommended. And for the over 65s, it's recommended. So the question is, do we allow ourselves to get Omicron and use that as a vaccine virus, so to speak, as a natural infection? Or do we go and get a booster? Well, it seems that certainly if you're in a risk group, absolutely go and get your booster every six months. But if you have no risk factors, then there's probably no need. And that's just me speaking. It's not a target. <laughs> well, Gary, you've mentioned that once before in a previous interview, and I really appreciate that. That was very clear. It was targeted. Uh, and I appreciate it's your own comment, uh, but it did make a lot of sense to me. Well, I think it, it makes sense now. We've moved away from Delta. I mean, when we were when we were with Wuhan, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon, and the other iterations, absolutely uh, getting the vaccine made a lot of sense because the death rate was reasonably high if you had risk factors. But the death rate overall is less than 0.05% around the world. Case fatality rate is tiny. And in particular, because when Omicron came along, it's, I wouldn't say zero, it's certainly not that, but it's very, very tiny. And particularly if you take into account the numbers and realise that the numbers of cases are, are in fact a gross underestimate. So when we look at, say, the numbers for Australia, we've had supposedly 11.2 million confirmed cases of COVID and 20,000 deaths. The case fatality rate on that's tiny. And if you look at the global snapshot, 765 million cases and 6.9 million deaths. Again, the case fatality rate is tiny, particularly when you realise that many of the deaths might be overestimated because many people appear to have died with COVID as opposed from COVID. And these 765 million cases around the world are probably an underestimate. I'm sure it's more like 2 billion. So we're dealing with a virus with a very, very, very low case fatality rate. Influenza has a higher case fatality rate, yeah. just for example. So do many other viruses yeah. uh, and bacteria, of course. So, you know, let's get it into perspective. Let's manage this thing properly. It's now part of a suite of respiratory viruses that we do have a vaccine for. People have the option to take that vaccine and it's recommended if you're in a risk group. Otherwise, it's a choice. Uh, and people need to be aware of the potential of vaccine injury. And particularly if you're a male under the age of 30, then... An mRNA vaccine is not even recommended by ATAGI anymore, or the World Health Organization, by the way. So it really means that ultimately people that are at risk, or in a risk group, I should say, everybody's at risk, but in a risk group, they're the people that should get the vaccine. I'm not so sure there's strong evidence to suggest that everybody should get the vaccine. Although I, if I was traveling, I would get the vaccine because I don't particularly want to end up in a hospital overseas. So uh, it would make sense for travelers to uh, get a top up, uh, but I'm not sure it makes sense that everybody should get a top up. I certainly don't think that anybody under the age of 50 um, should get an mRNA vaccine based on the current data. Again, a personal view and the choice is there for you unless you're in a risk group. And then I think it's important because there is a strong chance of hospitalization or, de or, or death 
But what's Omicron doing? That's the other thing. No, we can, I, we can indeed, because I just recently read that uh, some wise people have said that there's a 20% chance in the next couple of years that something, it might morph into something a little bit more deadly. Oh, a lot of people say that, but I just, I just don't agree with that at all. We've been looking at sub-variants now of Omicron for a year and a half. We haven't seen it move on from Omicron. So we're just looking at iterations and mutations within that group itself. Currently, we've got XBB 1.5, which they call Kraken, and XBB 1.16, which they call Arcturus. Fabulous names for a Hollywood movie, I think. Uh, and really does feed into the infodemic very, very nicely, which is unfortunate. We have to stop catastrophizing the appearance of every sub-variant and mm -hmm. stop catastrophizing the appearance of every mutation. This is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It is constantly changing scene. There will be more waves. Even the latest data from China show that their viruses continue to resemble the current circulating strains. There's no need to get all panicky and fearful about China or India where XBB 1.16 came from. The only additional thing to add about the 1.16, or Arcturus as it's called, is that it's, uh, it does seem to cause a conjunctivitis. In a way, that's not news. We've always known that COVID-19 can also be transmitted by the ocular route. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm, I'm not surprised that conjunctivitis has been identified, but that appears to be more so with Arcturus than it is the other strains. But we will see more iterations of these subvariants. Mutations will continue. I've got uh, some information in front of me from Gizade, which doesn't alarm me at all. And you know, we're not seeing the mutations that we fear. And you know, let's let's leave it to the virologists because there's no need to worry about the subvariants that are emerging at the moment. Everybody spruiks the fear that it will recombine with some other coronaviruses. Well, tell me where. Because these, you know, it won't come from animals again. Uh, with influenza, that's a constant problem because it's constantly in bird populations. But we've got a different scenario here. Uh, yes, it's in bats, uh, but it's very unlikely there'll be another recombination. We've not seen it in over 100 years. You know, let's stop panicking about it. And um, I think bring our mind back to more current issues like long COVID, getting a better vaccine, getting better antiviral drugs, not taking the ball, eye off the ball when it comes to COVID and in particular flu. And now RSV has reared its head, but there's a vaccine, as you may know, that's just been approved in the US to RSV for adults. You know, let's get our mind on those things and move forward rather than this infodemic that uses fear and false information to spruik its arguments. And it's worse than a Hollywood movie, in my view. And of course, we will constantly adding the mantra that you've been saying for years, wash your hands, wear your mask in at-risk spaces. Oh, it's critical, David. Oh. You know, uh, let's not fall into the cycle of neglect because that's how new viruses begin. If we keep educating ourselves and practice a good hygiene, then, and uh, it's just so critical, and wear a mask if we feel we need to, uh, then it will make a massive difference, not only to COVID, but to all diseases, as we saw during the pandemic when flu basically disappeared because of isolation, mask wearing, and people only traveling when they needed to and practicing hygiene, at least through sanitizers every time they went out. Sanitizers have almost also disappeared, which is a pity. I think uh, all these things should come back. That's just my personal view. But I would definitely wear masks in enclosed spaces, definitely wear masks uh, in an airplane. I, I do, because I'm over 65. 
And uh, this this just makes sense. Using sanitizers, hand washing before eating, and all these kinds of things, very simple things, help stop disease. And we need to keep educating our patients and educating our children about this without introducing the cycle of fear. But let's not introduce the cycle of neglect. Gary, it's always good to talk to you uh, because it's nice to replace misinformation with information and also to just hear how you just summarize recommendations for vaccines and personal safety. I think that um, uh, your talk on long COVID, of course, frightens all GPs because we have to keep our eyes really wide open for so many things. But I guess they will declare themselves over time. You know, kidneys we can measure, hearts will bring on some symptoms. Uh, but what concerns me, it will be the very long-term effects of brain injury. Uh, and that, of course, is difficult for us to see until it's way too late. Yes, I think it will still take some time for all that information to come through uh, and for the research to come through. It's, it's, it's certainly going on and there are many groups now studying long COVID but it will take some time there. I don't know his name, but there is a GP in Adelaide who is using various therapies uh, for his long COVID patients, but I'm not sure how that's going, but apparently uh, there's some success there with various hormone treatments. So again, watch this space. I think maybe in a year's time, David, there'll be a lot more information on yes. long COVID and how, to, and how to diagnose it and how to treat it. But of course, in my mind, Gary, when you said that it tended to affect the brain stem in the frontal parts of the brain, the frontal lobes. I'm just thinking that, goodness me, you know, will we come to a time when there'll be many disinhibited people who have been through some significant personality changes? Well, neurologists are certainly concerned, as are cardiologists, about the long-term effects of yes. COVID-19 and, and vaccines, about mm -hmm. the long-term effects of vaccine injury. So we need to give our eye on both those things. Gary, always a great pleasure to speak with you and thank you for... Uh, giving us your thoughts and information. Great speaking with you, David. Thank you again for the invitation. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.